Hey friends, here's your quick reminder that we are doing new shows every other week this summer. We'll have a new episode for you next week. And in the meantime, please enjoy this re-replay. I don't even know how to begin. <laughs> First of all, fuck you. Welcome back to Replaying Favorites. It's a podcast where I make Chris watch Netflix Christmas movies. I'm Free Callahan. I'm Chris Kelly. Yeah, it's happening, babies. We are watching A Christmas Prince, the 2017 American Christmas romantic comedy. Chris, do you have any thoughts about the experience that you were about to experience? I have a question to start off with. Okay. This was a made-for-TV movie, yes? This was not a theatrical release? No, no, no. It was distributed by Netflix. Okay. There are three of them. There is a... Is this? Does this count as spoilers? There's A Christmas Prince, which was in 2017, and then the sequel, A Christmas Prince, The Royal Wedding, which was 2018, and now A Christmas Prince, The Royal Baby. I mean... That is a slight spoiler in that I naturally assumed that this first movie would end with the wedding. Like, that's how these things go. I don't want to say more. I don't want to spoil it for you. I mean, this is a truly Christmas special experience, and I would hate for anything to take even an iota of joy and yuletide whatever the fuck away from you as you are forced to watch a fucking Christmas prince. <laughs> I... <laughs> I don't know anything about this movie, and yet at the same time, I feel like I know everything about this movie. You know, I feel around the time that we taped Cats is when we decided to harm each other with our, <laughs> with our movie choices, <laughs> and I don't think that we should go back. So I'm going to lay out some predictions. Okay. So she is a non-royal commoner who probably meets him in a way that makes her relatable, like she's clumsy or something and trips on him. And he has no personality but is perfect. And his mother is a disapproving scold, but they overcome that to come together at the end. And then she's a princess and her life is perfect. You don't have to tell me how close I am because I'll find out soon enough. Okay. You're not quite right. You've got beats in there that are ringing true to the Christmas Prince vibe. You know, I forgot that Christmas would have to factor in. So further prediction, right before Christmas, family complications mean that she has to storm away and be angry at him. But by the time Christmas comes around, they go to the Christmas party together being in love. Man, I don't know what it's going to feel like for you when you realize that you have been thwarted by the plot of A Christmas Prince. But... um <laughs> You know what? We will get to that after the break because there is absolutely no need to belabor this. Let's just watch this incredibly dumb, vaguely charming movie and we'll be back after the break. Hoo boy, we are back and we have watched A Christmas Prince. Uh, the short version of this movie is that Amber is an aspiring journalist sent to the tiny country of Aldovia to cover the coronation of bad boy Prince Richard on Christmas. Once there, she winds up posing as a tutor for Princess Emily, who has spina bifida. Turns out that Richard is actually a pretty good guy. A whole bunch of drama ensues. Richard is adopted. His cousin tries to steal the throne, but it all works out and it ends with Amber and Richard's engagement. We should do like the fast facts first, right? Before we get into it. These are going to be the fastest facts ever because it could not matter less. <laughs> um, 
Uh, A Christmas Prince is a 2017 Christmas romantic film uh, that was released by Netflix. It was directed by Alex Zam. It stars Rose McIver, who was also in iZombie, Ben Lamb, a whole bunch of other people, and also podcast favorite Alice Krieger, which uh, we do need to apologize for wildly mispronouncing her name over and over again, as I've also apparently just done now based on your face. Uh, Yeah, it's Krieger. There's no R in the end. Alice Krieger. We're all doing our best here. So as I said in the last episode, I didn't research how her name was pronounced because I was worried that I would spoil whatever this movie was. (laughs) Was that fear founded or not? (laughs) I can't imagine that even if I had seen this title that I would have suspected that you would consider watching it, let alone assigning it. But a common staple in American interviews is that people introduce her as Alice Krieger because that's a name that we are familiar with with that hard R. But it is Krieger when she says it. And when one person did say Krieg like I said it, she made a face. All right. Well, we're <sighs> deeply sorry, Alice. Um, she doesn't uh, listen. She's not our one listener. <laughs> I mean, I did make a call out that like John Cusack should stop listening. So like we may be down to zero and we need to get her on board. So with all that introduction taken care of, Chris, any first thoughts about A Christmas Prince? I don't I don't know where to start. This I didn't hate this movie. I'll say that. I didn't feel the kind of animosity toward it that I have felt for some of the other choices. Some. <laughs> I, one, okay. We're, the, <laughs> oh my god, what else is about to come out? <laughs> Better Off Dead will forever be the low point. And this easily jumped that hurdle. It wasn't offensive, but it is pretty stupid. And I'm having a hard time talking about this movie without seeming cruel to everyone involved in its production. I think it is impossible to love this movie for the same reason that it is impossible to hate this movie, which is that it is essentially a cardboard box. It's extremely inoffensive because it is bland. I think Rose McIver is relatively charming as Amber. (laughs) I wish sometimes that people could see the faces that you pull when I say things that you don't agree with. Here's the thing. I pull these faces because I don't want to have to say anything that disagrees with how perfectly charming Rose McIver is. I want to let that statement stand. (laughs) I'll say this. She acquits herself fine for what this item is. Alice Krieger does the same. I think that the little girl who plays Emily actually does a fairly good job in some scenes. Like she's actually given a surprising amount of the emotional lift of the movie to handle because she's got a dead dad and she's a little girl. And at some point, I think you will have to watch A Christmas Prince 2 or A Christmas Prince The Royal Wedding because they replace Amber's father and it's a trade down. I was real excited to see her very low-key, non-meddlesome dad with a mild New York accent. Oh, boy. I mean, I would say the spirit of this movie is everyone's first film. Like, when you (laughs) listed that Rose McIver had a big picture credit to her name... Oh, iZombie's a TV show. Oh, okay. Well, that makes a certain amount of sense. This just feels like a real enthusiastic try from all involved. Yeah, obviously this is a dumb movie. It's a schmaltzy movie. Mm -hmm. It leans right into that. So like, I have to at least give them the credit of not trying to make this thing more than it is. This is some Christmas time pap to feed into the Netflix machine so that people like me will watch it twice and recommend it to their friends 
or put another way, force their friends to watch it and then discuss it for well over an hour. (laughs) Um, That being said, the thing that they did wrong is that there's almost no chemistry between the two leads. If they had like a real charisma thing going together, I think it would elevate this movie much more than it does. But instead, it sort of beggars belief that both of them are so on board with like what happens. I have many questions about our prince. We can start with in the first scene in the office when they're looking up pictures of him. Both of her friends are like, oh, my God, he's everybody's type. How couldn't you be attracted to him? And I'm like, it's not out of the realm that someone wouldn't be attracted to this man. They're all in New York. There are hot people every day all over the place. I see them constantly. (laughs) He's just not like a head turner, you know, like. Yeah, he's perfectly serviceable looking, which I'm sorry, Ben Lamb. This is mean. We don't usually like go right in on like people's looks. (laughs) I don't want to like he's not a bad looking man. I wouldn't kick him out of bed. I just was surprised at how much time the text spent on his looks as if that was the most striking thing about him. It felt like we had to be told how good looking he was. And I was like, the script doth protest too much. I'll tell you what, it is a market improvement when they get that fake beard off him. Oh, Jesus. I did like that several people were like, oh, that beard. And they (laughs) meant like, you shouldn't have a beard. But what they were subtly saying was, this is the worst fake beard in history. Please take it off set and burn it. (laughs) I have to imagine that's what was done. It's truly horrendous. But okay, we're getting a little bit ahead of ourselves. Mm. I guess. So uh, the conceit of this film is that Amber is an aspiring journalist and she's stuck on the copy edit desk. And the introduction to her life in journalism sets up what I think is one of the... So there's a clear evil, right? Like there are Simon and Lady Sophia who are like there to do one specific thing. But there's kind of a broader like undercurrent of an evil person in this, which is journalism full stop. Everyone in this movie hates journalists. The journalists all behave abominably, except for Amber, who also actually behaves abominably, like when she steals fucking records from these people and is like going to break a story on it. But there's like a real through line of like, anti-journalism in this film, which is fascinating because the main character is a journalist, ostensibly. Yeah, the first person we meet, really, is the guy whose story that she's editing, who is an immense asshole for a reason that I cannot comprehend. But I was immediately struck with how much I hated this character that we literally never see again. No, he's just emblematic of what journalists are like. And notably, at the end, she makes the decision, like so many journalists have in 2020, to leave journalism and start her own blog, which is just, she really like saw that sort of like blogs 2.0 coming, I guess. And it's funny because I don't want to give anything away here, but the second movie, A Christmas Prince, The Royal Wedding has a real undercurrent of anti-unionism where like unions are really bad and like they have to solve the union problem. So like this is maybe a little too broad of a statement, but like there is a way in which this movie is like maybe attacking the fundamentals of like American democracy. I'm just putting it out there. I don't know that I would have gone that far with it, but I haven't (laughs) I haven't seen the sequel To be fair. It's really anti-union. It's very strange. (laughs) That's wild. I think the other issue with that first conversation she has with 
the guy that she's editing is that it makes it very clear how low on the ladder she is. Like, she's set up as such a peon that the idea that she would suddenly be given an international assignment solo <laughs> immediately beggars belief. Like, she has no power here. And they're like, here's your ticket and your press pass. Go with God. Yeah, like, Amber's first assignment would be like, go do a review of the pizza place around the corner. It would not be like, let's buy you a whole ass plane ticket and send you unsupervised to Aldovia to try to get an exclusive with the prince soon to be king of a, of a foreign country. It's also unclear what this magazine is focusing on. She was editing a fashion piece and now she is covering international politics. I think it's supposed to be a gossip magazine that is of the type that is very popular in like Britain and Australia and New Zealand, like Commonwealth countries. Like we don't have our own royalties, whereas like in countries that have royalty, there's like a whole beat that's like not, like assigned to that. And that was a confusing thing about the prince in general, too, is that he is at once a very famous and very mysterious presence because we are led to believe that he must be like Princess Die level famous, but also he has been completely anonymous and absent for a full year. Oh, because they talk about it later. There's some like nominal coverage of him being in like Spain or like being seen on a beach or somewhere. And it turns out he's like staged those stories. Like, it's so weird. He's like trying to do all this media management and like lie and doesn't want the crown. His motivations are completely uh, opaque. It's clear that he doesn't really seem to want the throne and feels like he has to take it. And so... To compensate for that, he set up this like bad boy persona to what end in the hope that Aldovi would be like, we don't want you to be king. I don't know what the purpose of the playboy thing is, except as always to serve the needs of the plot. I mean, we are maybe jumping into this rather quickly, but the whole plot hangs on this idea that we have to get to the truth about the prince. And in the end, we never actually do. Short of he has one time thrown snowballs with orphans and is thus a good person, we don't have data points about what he did for that whole year that we're supposed to be figuring out what the fuck he was doing. I would also like to posit that he is not a good person in the scene where he goes and throws snowballs with orphans. That is nice. However, off screen, his mother is standing alone on a stage while her son just doesn't show up. She's standing up there being peppered with questions. And he's like, I'm throwing snowballs with the orphans. And then when Amber and Emily go to get him, they're just like, oh, what a beautiful time. They're not like, hey, get the fuck back here and do your job, man. Yeah. The other data point we have is that he absolutely steals Amber's cab at the beginning, which is set up as like, oh, what a funny misunderstanding. And it's like, no, you thought he was an asshole and he was being an asshole in that moment. There's no justification. He was being a dick. <laughs> yeah, that's not even supposed to be his playboy persona at that point, because he's like literally incognito to try to like get home. Between that and the snowball fight, we have examples of him actually not being particularly considerate. He plays the piano. Yeah, he plays the piano and he's tall. Those are his best qualities. We talked about this during Better Off Dead. That's literally most of it. <laughs> oh my God. Even in almost 2020, the bar has been set so low for straight men. And they continue to just limbo under it. But there's Richard, the catch of Aldovia, and he's just like kind of okay at archery. Actually, he sucks at archery too. 
He's okay at riding horses and playing the piano. And he seems to have a somewhat good, if slightly distant relationship with his mother. And he treats his sister good. It's also funny to me because as a royal, even of a small country, one assumes that he has many resources available to him. If you love the orphans so much, then divert some fucking money. No, those orphans only need one snowball fight per year and then they're good. (laughs) It occurs to me only now that there's supposed to be some kind of like foreshadowing or something that like his deep connection with the orphans is because he himself is adopted. I mean, let's save the discussion of that completely ridiculous plot point. Let's jump instead to a different completely ridiculous plot point. This is very specific to my life experience, which used to like work in press and communications. But my absolute favorite thing in this movie every single time is the press conference. He's standing behind a podium. There are three microphones pointed at him. All the reporters in the audience are holding up their individual recorders. There's no malt box. The point of the microphones is that everybody plugs into one central box so that you record the audio. Yeah, this movie doesn't know what the press does. It also doesn't know how royalty works. Like, there's a whole royal family here. And granted, royalty works a little different in every country, so you could make up a lot of rules about this made-up country. But it often feels like the royal family is maybe just very rich and mildly famous, but otherwise doesn't abide by any sort of other rules. Like, there's no indication that anyone has even watched one season of The Crown, also on Netflix. You know, like, get get some context. I like the part where she's like, oh, well, can I get an exclusive with the prince then? Bitch, no. What? So the whole press corps is very disappointed and grumbling, but also, like, you know, excited to go back to the bar and drink because they're journalists. So Amber decides at that point she's going to get her scoop by sneaking into the castle. Now, I'm not a spy, but... The first thing I would have done, especially in a hostile press environment, was take off my press pass. It's clear she has no plan, but her complete lack of guile is so obvious that it is amazing she made it even a foot into the door. And again... No one here has ever seen how royalty is treated because no one is posted at any of the doors. She just wanders (laughs) freely through this very nice hotel posing as a castle. (laughs) Yeah. And the first man that she meets is like, oh, you must be the tutor. Come this way. Like, no one checks a credential. They expected that their tutor would just, like, show up in the castle and wander around until she was found and directed to the place to go tutor. The number of people that feed her information is... (laughs) extremely convenient but people tell her what her job is what her name is (laughs) where she should be where she should be from when you say who are you you wait for a response you're not just like oh i know who you are like that's not how the world like so she gets taken to the princess and i have an all caps note Oh no, a tragic child. This is the one thing that I actually think is good about this movie is that the child is not tragic. They've given her like a tragic disease. But the one characterization of Amber's that I really like is that she's just like, I'm going to treat you like a normal kid because you are a normal kid. Like, I'm not going to like make you a little fragile princess. I kind of like that, actually. I wish the script had not been so heavy on instances of Amber explaining in an almost teary-eyed fashion that she was going to treat her like a normal girl. Like, it would be lovely to see that treatment. It is less lovely to hear her congratulate herself for it. Based on what I know about spina bifida, which is not a ton, 
I do think they should have maybe drawn the line at tobogganing. I don't think that that was like a great choice, but I could be wrong about that. And if you're a spina bifida expert, please feel free to correct us. That scene had me worried mostly because there's a loose horse in it. Like I was ready for that princess to get trampled. <laughs> Christmas Prince 2, a Christmas funeral. <laughs> like, I mean, no one's taking control of the loose horse around a child on the ground. The horse is very obviously distressed and runs away. This is a recipe for disaster from a child who cannot free herself from the ground. She needs help right now. I mean, the other horse seems to probably get home okay, unless it was eaten by wolves. Is this... Do wolves actually show up in this movie? I checked out for periods of this because I was like, this is not that important. Oh, no. The exact scene from Beauty and the Beast does happen where our heroine <laughs> is surrounded by wolves. And by surrounded by wolves, I mean shots of one growling wolf are inserted <laughs> from st presumably stock footage. The low budget of this movie couldn't be more apparent if they literally had like a dollar countdown on the screen. Like we spent $100 on this shot. Like, it's like one of those thermometer bulbs where like, it's just like filling up with money and then like goes down as they film each scene. So to get back to our plot chronology, the next thing that happens is that she takes the princess out to the prince who is practicing his archery because they're not going to do lessons because she's not a tutor. And the whimsical thing that happens is that they pass around a weapon. I think what you're missing in terms of the whimsy factor is that once again, Amber is a complete klutz and she ruins a, a very extremely important, well, one presumes, painting and a window in addition to like the Ming vase or whatever that she breaks. Oh, I forgot that she backed into an expensive relic. As a clumsy girl myself... I relate most closely to this part of the film. I was going to say these are her only two instances of clumsiness, but I think the most glaring instance of clumsiness is the display she makes of taking cell phone pictures of everything. She oh holds God. that phone up just next to her head at every fucking opportunity. She like duct tapes her press pass to it. <laughs> She's not a subtle girl. I guess that's the thing is that this movie relies upon Amber being slightly good at subterfuge because she needs to like pose as a different woman, collect information and then like report out a story. And she's terrible at every single aspect of that. Like my favorite thing is the notes that she takes in her journalist notebook that are like, this is something I should continue thinking about. Why would you write that down? It's wild to me that they chose to make her the lowest rung on the totem pole for no reason. There are lots of ways that this could be a stretch for her without it being like, we're pulling you out of serving lunch to people and into international journalism. It's because the organizing conceit of the movie is that journalists are scum. And the only reason that she can rise above that is because she is not a journalist. She's a junior copy editor and then subsequently blogger. I would like to say that from now until the end of the film, we do not see a single other journalist. There are three <laughs> coronations. There are zero members of the press. Not one camera, not one microphone, nothing. We can't just go bopping along without any source of conflict. So introduced are two sources of conflict. Cousin Simon, a foppish ne'er-do-well if ever there was one, and Lady Sophia, 
an ex of Richard's uh, who is back to try to get her claws into him now that he's going to be king. Yes, we know that Lady Sophia is bad because there is a huge black zipper running up the back of her dress. (laughs) Of her red dress, I believe. Yeah. (laughs) What a whore. Simon and Sophia are introduced as, you know, two problematic people who are going to, like, mess up this perfect thing that Amber's got going as she lies and cheats her way to the top. Simon is the cousin of Richard, so he is next in line to the throne because there is no other male heir. I like that the movie takes a moment to, like, point out that that's stupid and hypocritical, though, again, as always, like, handled in the most ham-handed ways possible. Uh, And then Lady Sophia, as I mentioned, is trying to get her claws back into Richard now that he's going to be king. Thoughts? I don't know what to say about these two. I was most surprised that this was all revealed at what was obviously a cocktail party, and thus how deeply inappropriate it was to invite the princess, who is well below the legal drinking age, and no one else is a child in this instance. Also, everyone is just having blatantly open conversations in, like, mixed company. Sophia and Simon have just a straight-up conversation about what their plot is going to be, and the Prime Minister confronts the Queen and is like, so is he going to be king or what? (laughs) Like, in the middle of the Christmas party. Yeah, this hotel has no private offices, apparently. There's some outfit that Alice Krieger has that I actually really like. She's wearing this blue dress with like long sleeves and it's got a really nice gold cap shoulder. She's overall, she's got like a very dancerly frame. Like that one's 66 and she's fucking crushing it. Oh, she looks great. I love Alice Kriega. She is doing her level best to take this seriously. And I appreciate that. This is also a very different role from the Borg Queen. I'll give her that. (laughs) Her spine wasn't inserted into anything in this movie. (laughs) That's the main difference that I was thinking of. (laughs) If I had to think of the differences between this and the last role, it's mostly spinal insertion. And she didn't try to have awkward sex with a robot. You know, the more I think about it, the more I think that there are almost no similarities other than the word queen. (laughs) She did play a queen twice, which is good for her. But she is playing a sort of weird, cold, distant mother as opposed to a weird, sexy robot. And she (laughs) handles both of them very well. Yeah, it's very funny because something has gone wrong in the raising of both of these children. Like, Richard has apparently not been groomed effectively for the task of replacing his father. And Emily has been allowed to sort of run wild, mostly because I'm sure her mother is like exhausted because she was 50 when she birthed her. But um, this level of self-doubt and this rebellious streak or what have you would suit a much younger man. Like by the time he's 20, 29, he should probably be like have worked through those feelings. I think it would also help if we had any indication at any point in time of what his alternative was. He's been gone for a year and we never explore what his other ambitions are or what he was working through during that time or what else he tried. Like, if he doesn't want to be king, what the fuck does he want to do? He had a whole year. And also, like, what is his game plan? Because he's very adverse to the idea of Simon taking over. But that's the only solution. And also... 
Is he not a figurehead? They have a parliament and a prime minister. Yes, though the prime minister's only job seems to be to show up to parties and like administer the oath of office for the royalty, which I don't actually think is what the prime minister does. But They don't do a lot of setting up how this government works. But my understanding was that this is sort of in the British line of things where there is a royal family, but they are ceremonial, though the whole crux of this plot is that the king wrote a law on a piece of paper that no one ever saw or (laughs) saw it witnessed or anything. And yet somehow it is law because we think the king probably wrote it. I don't think that the writers of this movie know anything about monarchy. Like they know that there has to be like a king and a queen and then also a prime minister because like that's how monarchy works. But I don't think that they fully understand like how the division of labor and like laws function in monarchical societies. The movie doesn't care. Oh, it's fine. No, the movie doesn't care about anything. The movie, it doesn't care about any of its lead characters. None of them have inner (laughs) lives. These are the most hollow people I've ever looked at. We got to get back to Amber losing her horse and being in a bell and the beast situation where she's got to like get to a cabin for like Prince Sexy Time. Man, they just have no chemistry whatsoever. Uh, So my note, and I should reference that this is the actual first time I've looked at my notes, which if this episode is not good, that's why. So I've written, let's have sexy time in the cabin, followed immediately by, in all caps, no one wants your advice, Amber. She can't even like get the clue that he's like trying to like make the moves on her. And she's just like, well, let me give you some sincere advice about your situation. And it's like, Kronk. okay, we have to talk about the horse chase. I want to go back a little bit. Okay. First of all, it's very clear that neither of our leads could actually ride a horse because that scene is filmed from space. They are so <laughs> far away to obscure the fact that we, like there's they don't want us to see the faces of these people because they're very obviously not our lead actors. Oh yeah, there's this there's the scene where um Amber gets thrown from the horse and like the girl who gets thrown from the horse is like a solid 5 inches taller than, than Rose MacGyver. And also, you can't chase someone on a horse. This is not like following someone in a taxi. These are the only two horses for miles in any direction. And he just doesn't notice her. And then she falls off the horse and he finds her an hour later. Like, how long has she been wandering the woods after she falls off? It's like pretty dark. Like, she seems like she's been trudging for a little bit. So after that delightful horse chase, they get to the chalet and It's clear to me in this scene how little time the two of them spend alone together. Like they have one scene talking about the piano and then I guess they have one scene at the end and maybe a couple smatterings of scenes where like they're fully alone. But this one is the longest one and it's excruciating. Yeah, they do that thing where they lean in really close like they're going to kiss. But the only reason they might kiss is because they're accidentally so close to each other already. Like, it doesn't, like, there's nothing about their interaction beyond the fact that we know that they're the two leads in a movie that would make me think that they should kiss. Uh, You know, we've talked about what charisma means, right? Like, we talked about Mark Ruffalo and how he's, like, kind of an average to cute average, like, looking guy. But he's got, like, so much charisma that, like, it really, like, grounds him and, like, makes him into something more. You cannot establish like what the element is that makes heat in a scene between two people. But this is the anti that. I think it says everything that he stops almost kissing her because the horses make a noise. He's like, I should go check on those horses. I'm like, yep, that's more compelling than this. That's a good call. (laughs) 
<laughs> I mean, he has a connection with the horses. I don't know why he wouldn't go check on them. Anyway, so he goes to check on the horses, which gives her a chance to investigate because she's a detective and we get to open a secret drawer in the desk that has every document you would need to completely destroy the lineage <laughs> of the royal family. Okay, so here's what's crazy about that whole thing is it has all the documents that could destroy his lineage but not the one document that you would want in that same folder. That has been folded and put inside an acorn, which was supposed to be like a gift for the queen or for Richard. So they were going to, after not telling him he was adopted all these years, they were going to spring on him that the king had written a law that he could still be the king, even though he was adopted. It's like, you guys, you need to start with this. Well, A, probably in childhood, but B, this is a lot of information to drop on someone all at once. But like, maybe let's keep all the documents together and also in a bank. But also, why did it take the king until his son was 26 years old to realize that he might need a law for that whole lineage problem? Yeah, I probably would have sorted that out at the exact time that I decided to adopt a child. He didn't even think of it after his wife had a child who was a girl. <laughs> like... At the point when your wife miraculously had a natural born child and you're like, oh, maybe this is our chance. And then it's a girl and you're like, oh, people are still expecting that our boy will ascend to the throne. That's the moment when you're like, we got to circumvent this. And also, how about the queen? Was she never like, hey, could we get some method of succession in order so that like in the horrible event that you die in a tobogganing accident, me, Emily and Richard aren't kicked out into the street and that cousin Simon takes over because that's what is going to happen unless they like deal with this situation. It's just a real lot of poor planning. It's like they filmed the first draft. None of this makes sense. It's for Netflix. It's for Christmas. This is sort of like a casino, right? Just like open the doors and make money. <laughs> like it's not, I've watched this movie two times and it makes no sense. <laughs> it's We are now about to give this movie free publicity. I don't think that the discussion we're having is going to make a lot of people eager to see it. I disagree. You should watch A Christmas Prince. It is perfectly fine. Oh, I'm sorry. I should clarify. I just don't think a lot of people are listening. You know, we're going to have to decide at what point we stop making the joke that only one person is listening because like maybe people think only one person is listening. And instead, I would like to thank all of our dedicated listeners who download and rate and subscribe this podcast each week. We love you. We would love five stars. And, uh, you know, tell your friends. And also, we're on Twitter at Replaying Faves, and we're on Instagram at Replaying Favorites. I handled the socials like in the middle of the episode. Aren't you so proud? That was a stellar transition, and I'm sure our 100,000 followers are grateful for it. I bet they are. Okay, so... We need to deal with the fact that Amber is a really bad person. And instead of like bringing these documents to the attention of the man that she's into, she instead decides to keep them so she can have a scoop at her morally ambiguous fashion blog magazine place. Thoughts about that? I think it's like really scummy, actually. I think it's and it marks the transition when Amber becomes a real journalist by this movie standards. I understand not knowing what to do with information of this magnitude. She is a copy editor who has been given the fate of a nation. Okay, but like, let's discuss Amber's choices. One, if she either destroys 
or shows Richard the documents, he could still become the king, a man that she thinks is a really good guy and like should be the king of Aldovia and who she is like falling in love with. Or if she publishes her story, Cousin Simon becomes the king. (laughs) She's not wrong that there is like journalistic value to these documents, but the way she's come across them is like so unethical that it basically like destroys the journalistic value that they have. I think it would have been less damning to her if we had focused on her not wanting to reveal to the prince that he is adopted. That is a difficult and sensitive conversation and she might want to take some time to figure out how to bring that up to him and i can understand that i think her weighing whether to publish that information is a separate discussion that makes her a lot grimier there's a different version of this movie where she finds that ski chalet on her own mm. and she finds the secret drawer and she has the information and like Richard's not around and now she's got to make a decision about what she wants to do next. But Richard is just out attending to the horses. He's about to come right back in. Instead, she makes the decision to hide the materials and put them in her bag. It's at that point that she's made an unethical decision. You could just like leave the things in that drawer and been like, hey, while you were outside, this drawer popped open. It's not really her business or responsibility, like how he takes this information. Like instead, she chooses to use it for her own benefit. And like, it's oh my God, I cannot believe like I'm getting like so worked up about like the moral choices of Amber, a woman who is already like posing as a tutor in order to get close to the royal family in A Christmas Prince. <laughs> <laughs> it is funny. You... I can't get that worked up because I can't even remember the lead characters' names until you say them to me. So I like am just not deeply invested in this plot. I think I am more rowdy about the way that journalism is presented and executed in this movie than I am about like anything that happens in the movie. So like that's my own thing and probably not something anyone's going to relate to. Here's my thing that I get worked up about in this movie because we're coming up on the makeover. I could talk for a while about this makeover. Okay. I want to say first, the bracelet that Emily gives her is the ugliest fucking thing I've ever seen. It's like straight out of like Pandora, Jared, K Jewelers, whatever that brand is. Oh, it is straight out of Claire's. It is (laughs) disgusting. I'm horrified to think that she would wear it with like a ball gown. That is a generous description of the dress they give her. Um, Also, her makeover is 97% eyeliner. It's just like, (laughs) put more eyeliner on this woman. That's the whole makeover. So I think that's actually pretty similar to what her... I don't know why I keep referring to iZombie like this is a show I watch. I've never seen it. And that is how she is styled there too. Like super blonde, lots of eyeliner. It was just such a baffling choice because other than a half inch of black in every direction around her (laughs) eye, there's almost no change to what she, I guess her hair is up, but like, she's not prettier. Her eyes look overdone and end of list. She looks nighttime. I don't know. I mean, you know, I don't know that much about it, but yeah, I think her hair looks kind of nice. It's an, a nice little updo. Like, it's not too far up. Like, it's, it looks pretty relaxed. Like, neutral face, a thousand percent eyeliner. And also, notably, no eyelashes, 
Like, if we've learned anything from Guardians of the Galaxy, it's that even a bad lash is better than no lash. Put a fake eyelash on Rose McIver. It's her makeover, goddammit. Noted. I feel passionately about this. I was <laughs> horrified when they zoomed in. I was like, they didn't even put lashes on this bitch? Come on. So you were less horrified by that than, like, the converse? The fact that they treat wearing sneakers like a personality trait. <laughs> like, literally every human on the planet wears sneakers. That's just a thing that people wear because they're comfortable. I get it. She's expected to wear a high heel. Uh -huh. If anything, I think it's a little rude to show up to the most formal event she's ever been to in a fucking sneaker. Yeah, like, she was given access to and requests were made for her to, like, perform this thing. If you don't want to do it, like, if you don't want to go to the ball, that's fine. You can opt out. Yeah, I think it's a little rude. It's also, like, the movie plays it for, like, just way too cute by half. She shows everyone. She's at the. She's just walked down the stairs. She lifts up her dress to show Emily and everyone else the fact that she's wearing sneakers and then she's also got to point it and like turn it and it's like girl we know you're wearing the cons you still got the cons on it's fine and p.s every single other human being has entered through the front door she comes down the stairs the wrong way to announce that she's underdressed like this is the worst breach of protocol that aldonia has ever seen she should be banned from the country aldovia Whatever. It's not a real place I can fuck up the name. <laughs> My favorite part in the entire movie is that she walks all the way down that goddamn staircase doing the princess die, like not looking down. Like it's hard to walk down a staircase in a ball gown without looking down. She does the whole thing. And then Richard's like, oh, hello. Well, time to go back up the staircase into the ball. And <laughs> Like, if I was Richard, I'd be like, stay up there. We're coming to you. <laughs> well, that's the thing. Like, did she come from the venue where they are holding the coronation? <laughs> like, what the, like, where was she before this? Who knows? Who knows? So what also happens at the ball, for no reason, is the coronation of Prince to King Richard. I know that we established at the beginning of this movie that the coronation would happen on Christmas, but when we got to the Christmas ball and it was also a coronation, I remained floored. That is just <laughs> so inappropriate that those two things are the same. Because of the low budget, it also had all the trappings of like a high school dance. So it just felt really out of character that he was suddenly going to be like hauled on stage to receive like his Buffy like little umbrella for saving the class a lot. But instead, he got to be a king after. It was very strange. Can we talk about the fact that his coronation is just the script for wedding vows. <laughs> like, if anyone has any objections, that's not part Wait. of any coronation. <laughs> they were really excited to get onto a Christmas prince Cole in the royal wedding. <laughs> like, let me just say that. My favorite thing about that scene is that Sophia has taken these very important documents that she's stolen from Amber, who also stole them, and folded them up and put them in her dress somewhere because she unfolds that shit and is just like, mm-mm. <laughs> On the topic of the official documents, it's very important to note that these 
are eight and a half by 11 pieces of paper with wide white borders that no one bothered to trim. Like this was so obviously printed off of a computer and no effort was made to hide that. And they're all like the exact same document with just like the names changed in Microsoft Word. It's so great. It's fine. The prime minister looks at them for half a second as like, it's real. This movie is so silly. So at that point, the jig is up for Amber because Lady Sophia and Cousin Simon have also discerned that she is not Martha Anderson from Minnesota. She is sent home in shame or she's sent to the airport in shame. There are a lot of things about this movie that scream low budget, but the airport might be the top of that list. My actual favorite thing about that scene is that United clearly sponsored the movie because like we just cut to United planes like driving around the outdoors of the airport for absolutely no reason. It could not matter less. <laughs> oh, I absolutely assumed that was just stock footage they had paid for <laughs> oh God, because be the right. interior of the airport has no United signage. There's just the name of the country because that's what happens when you go to an airport. It's just the name of the country everywhere. For all you know, that was filmed in Rudy's diner. <laughs> And then her dad makes her realize that, like, the acorn, something about the poem, and she's written the poem in, like, script in her notebook, which is just, like, another choice detail. Like, her reporter's notebook is so funny to me. So she she runs back to the palace. We haven't talked about the battle axe woman. Uh, what's her name? Mrs. Avril. Mrs. Avril. We have done no discussion of Mrs. Avril, whose whole job is to be mean. I guess she's a... a chief of staff what does the queen have she's got like a real like lead housekeeper vibe but it seems like she sort of manages the palace yes regardless of what her job is and this movie doesn't know either so why should i when blonde reporter lady shows up i've forgotten her name and we've just said it <laughs> it's amber it's amber i feel like this is belligerence on your part at this point but i'm into it no i just really couldn't care less who any of these people are so <laughs> When Amber shows up to the palace to meet Mrs. Averill, she is met with crossed spears as if she's in the fucking Middle Ages, not guards with guns. And also, this is the only time we have seen guards anywhere in this fucking castle. No, that's not true. There are also guards at the bottom of the stairs when Amber like runs out of the dance slash coronation. And that guard just must be like... Oh, no. <laughs> like, like, he doesn't do anything or help in any way. He's just sitting there like. But yes, the cross spears are ridiculous. Like, where were these guards at the beginning of the movie? They have a full medieval spear crossing that does nothing because Mrs. Averill's immediately like, yes, you seem impassioned. Why not come up into the palace? <laughs> You've literally ruined everything. But you know what? Ugh. Come on in. And so she goes to... Okay, we all knew the acorn was going to open the instant it was brought up. Yeah. And it's funny. I noticed when our tower of a prince was handed the acorn that he hangs it really low on the tree. <laughs> and it's because he's at least a foot taller than Amber. And so he can't <laughs> hang it out of her reach or this scene would suddenly be hilarious. <laughs> Just I like, mean, she's wearing gym shoes. She could just hop. She's <laughs> desperately clawing at this acorn. She's like, I just know it's got the answer. I know it. 
oh my god, the fate of this whole nation hangs on this poor besneakered woman. So yeah, Mrs. Avril's on board, and with the acorn in hand, they run to Parliament and or a different wing of the palace, where the poor beleaguered Prime Minister is again fulfilling his only role, which is to swear into office the next King of Aldovia. Here's my other big question about this movie. The overarching premise is that the king has a year before he takes the throne. In the meantime, who is in charge? If the monarchs make the laws, isn't that fairly important? (laughs) (laughs) You know, it's that classic thing where a country just doesn't need any leadership for a year once the previous leader does. Okay, so... Simon and Sophia, who are so messy, and I love them. Sophia, like, instantly files for divorce. Bless her. (laughs) Oh, poor transparent Sophia. It's weird (laughs) that the queen likes her, because Sophia has done nothing to paint herself as a good person. She literally does everything except for, like, stroke a cat. How did we not give her a mustache to twirl? Like, it's just inherent in the character. (laughs) Yeah. But with Amber's newfound acorn information... Just the idea that you could be like, I pulled a document from a Christmas ornament. It is the law. Anyway, so Amber, having saved the day, departs Aldovia to return to New York and file her story. (laughs) I have so many comments about this ending. Please do. Oh my God. So my first note is in all caps, a vest. The gay wears a vest. Like <laughs> <laughs> My note is, she's got a black friend and a gay friend. Good for her. Also, the wine they are drinking is very pale. It is a red <laughs> wine, but it is a bright yet see-through. Like, it's, it's cranberry juice. They're just drinking cranberry juice. I'm horrified to tell you that we actually have to step back because you skipped over Amber quitting her journalism job to pursue a blog. Because that's the only way she can get out the real story of how really great Richard is. And her blog has 20,000 views. My next note is 20,000 likes is still zero dollars. Okay, so somebody took a very long time to write up a very detailed synopsis of this movie for its Wikipedia page. Hmm. At the end of the synopsis, they point out that her blog gained so much attention that it eventually attracts the attention of Prince Richard. And like, he flies to New York to propose. And I'm like, that's not what? What? That's not why. God, I already thought that his proposal was garbage, but it would be worse if he only did it because she wrote a nice blog about him. The whole thing is like, this is such a like faux millennial story. Like she quits on a whim to pursue a blog and her friends are like, yeah, you're my hero for starting a blog. Like, and my ass was like, you don't have health insurance anymore. Like, <laughs> so back to Christmas Eve, all of her friends or her two friends are having dinner with her at her dad's diner, as I'm sure they love to do all the time. And they have recruited dates for each of them. I feel so bad for that third boy who's just like, oh. I had the same thought that they just wave at him through a window. They clearly don't want to pay him enough to give him lines. And so she's just like, I can't. To be fair, she is in a work uniform when this happens. Like she is working a shift at a restaurant. No one should assume that she's available to go out on a date. She's at a job. So at that point, 
the Christmas prince shows up outside the door, blah, 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 blah. He does have a good line, which is, how long do you plan to keep a king on his knees? And I wrote underneath that forever, baby. (laughs) Which is maybe maybe my own thing. So she accepts the ring. She's going to be fucking queen of Aldovia. It's ridiculous as fuck. I just got to say, there was no point during that final scene where I thought it was a good idea for her to say yes to that proposal. She doesn't have health insurance. It's a great idea. I mean... She brings up clear examples of why she should not accept. She's like, my family is here. My friends are here. My whole life is here. I don't know you that well. Like, she gives good reasons why not to marry him. And he's like, but I'm a king and I'm tall. And she's like, all right. Like, (laughs) I like that he's just straight up like, (laughs) we can replicate your dad's garbage diner in Eldovia. (laughs) Which... Why would you do that? Why would that be a good option? Like, does her dad want to move to Aldovia? Probably not. (laughs) Have we asked him? Absolutely not. But that's not what happens at the end of romantic comedies. You never think about, like, the practicalities or what should happen next or, like, what's going to happen to your family if you do this or anything else. It's always just some, like, wild thing where you get swept off your feet and then a ring. It's also the ugliest ring. Oh, it's not quite as bad as the bracelet, but it's up there. Listen, I don't want to insult anyone else's taste. I've done enough of it. So let's just say that the ring could be better. But (laughs) again, it all just speaks to the fact that it is very strange to tell a royal story on this little money because the seams are showing every which way. Counterpoint, is it? I feel like this is perfectly fine for Netflix. Like, it's doing exactly what it promises you at the beginning, which is it delivers a Christmas prince. It's an inoffensive thing you can put on while grandma is at the house shouting about Trump. That is what it is there for. And it hits that line drive right down the center. It's my fault for thinking about this movie literally at all. That's the problem. (laughs) All right. Final thoughts beyond what we've discussed about A Christmas Prince? Only that I remain baffled that anyone has ever watched this movie. The weird thing is that, like, I'm deeply turned off by, like, Christmas trappings of, like, various movies. But I don't mind this. Like, I'm not trying to watch it, like, all the time. But if you are drunk or high, (laughs) A Christmas Prince is a great way to spend some night of the Christmas season It is dark at (laughs) 4.15. You cannot go outside. And a Christmas prince is there waiting for you. And I'll leave it at that. A perfect summation. So with that in mind, what movie will we be watching next? Please don't escalate. Please don't escalate. I'm delighted to inform you that it's not even me choosing the movie next week. We have a (gasps) guest host coming in. Guest host! Bree. We are bringing in Vita James, who is a social worker, an activist, a writer, and both of our friends. And she will be showing us the 1996 movie Basquiat, which is a biopic of Jean-Michel Basquiat, the artist from the 80s. So I have seen this movie once, but I remember almost none of it. Have you seen it? I have not seen it. Great. 
I'm excited to see how this goes because we've also never had a guest before. So there will be three of us. I'm excited to hang out with Vita. Oh my God, everyone, you're going to love Vita James. She's just an A plus human being. You're going to try to replace at least one of us with her. Honestly, I wouldn't even dispute that. If Vita decided that I was irrelevant to this podcast, I would agree with her because she is a near perfect human being. A solid second and agree. Yeah. I love you too, Brian. I think that you are phenomenal. (laughs) I feel like Vita has better taste than both of us. So I am excited to be guided by her influence. Absolutely. So everyone go watch Basquiat. We will do the same. It'll be fun. And we'll see you next week. Goodbye. Bye. I have seen European Christmases and they are fucked up. If they had thrown a Krampus in here, that would have been something great.